The version of the podcast that you're listening to now has been cut down quite extensively. It's for those of you who want to get a quick snapshot of Karen and some insight into company culture. I highly recommend that you listen to the extended version, as you'll hear Karen talk about her exhilarating experiences, including why she was chased by Hutu militia out of Rwanda, and what it was like being a spiritual midwife. So, if you're not in any rush, I recommend you go and listen to that version instead. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Karen Harmon. Um, I'm Karen Harmon, um, General Manager for our Australian and Pacific programs and more recently appointed um, Executive Director for our organisational culture. Mm-hmm. And how long have you been uh, with APT or the company APT JTA, in well APT-JTA. I, I started, uh, my first um, uh, appointment was in 2002. Uh, I worked for um, five years uh, as a um, program director and um, I looked after the technical side of the company at that time as uh, deputy CEO. And that was with with, JTA? No, that was with JTA JTA. International. And then um, in 2008, 2009, I um, had a bit of a career change and went down to live on a farm and um, quickly found that that wasn't really going to satisfy what I wanted to do you know, with that part of, at that time in my life. So um, I started doing a lot of consulting work with uh, JTA. And uh, then in 2013, I uh, came back into the fold. Hmm. So what, well, how did you first get involved with uh, JTA? Well, it was an interesting story. I first met Jane when I was working on a project in the Philippines. Uh, it was a women's health program and it was a, what we called a multi-donor pro- program. Uh, and it was being implemented by this, uh, what was Ausaid at the time. Uh, it was being also supported through um, this um, ADB, the Asian Development Bank, uh, through the EU or the European Union. And um, the program was to improve um, safe motherhood um, and child survival across the entire Philippines. Uh, the OSAID funded part of the program was uh, looking at how we would strengthen um, the capacity of health workers working in women's health and they included um, uh, ranging from doctors, um, uh, obstetricians, um, first line um, medical um, personnel right down to um, volunteer health workers. And I met Jane as um, I was the team leader of the program and Jane was the um, uh, one of the members on the advisory um, panel uh, who uh, looked after uh, the quality of the program on behalf of um, the DEF, uh, or the OSAID as it was then, uh, funding. And um, we got to know each other at that point in time and I came back to Australia at the conclusion of that program and stumbled into Jane in um, Canberra. And uh, we just caught up and she asked what I was doing and I, at that time I was working um, as a CEO for a drug and alcohol program in Canberra and mentioned to her how um, frustrated I was with, uh, with the work that I was doing. And, you know, she offered commiserations and said, next time you're in, Cam- uh, in Brisbane, you know, just pop in and we'll have a coffee. Well, I did pop in, had a coffee and walked out with the job. 
that tends to be the way Jane operated at the time, which was great. But I was, I'm always very cautious about being invited for coffee these days because <laughs> you never know what job you're going to end up with. So can you uh, talk a little bit about um, what GTA was like? I'm sure many of the people are listening to yeah, this. Yeah, we were uh, very. Well, it was a very small company. In fact, when I joined, it wasn't called even called JTA. It was called APAC. So that was Asia Pacific. Um, um, health systems, APAC health systems, and it wasn't long after I joined, possibly about eight months, uh, when um, there were some wholesale changes in the in the organisation, and um, Jane became sole owner of the company, and it became uh, JTA International. So that was um, back in you know the very early two thousands. At that time, there were very very small staff. Um, I think there were about seven of us. Um, and we quickly became a very cohesive family unit and uh, very much how we operated. And, uh, and I think that's the genesis of the culture that we have now, that it was a very supportive, nurturing environment uh, with a group of people committed to the same um, value set and you know, had the same passion for the work that they were doing. And what would you say um, those values are specifically? I'm sure... I'm sure. Many are familiar with them, but I'd just like to hear the values at that time. At that time, yes. Yeah. Well, they were they were about you know um, being excellent in everything that we did. It was about you know being able to um, um, demonstrate not just your passion, but you know the skill set that sits behind that to be able to enable those passions to um, to drive change and to address issues of poverty in very real and meaningful ways in the work that we did. You know, we had values that ensured that, that we were mutually supportive of each other, that um, we continued to uh, learn and grow uh, individually and um, as, as a group and a fairly small cohesive group at that point in time. And to a large extent, those values um, um, have remained unchanged, um, even though we might have different titles to those values that we do at the moment um, as apt. But um, the important thing is that uh, the fundamentals to the work that we do, the ethical uh, positions that we take, the choices that we make are, are in line absolutely with the values of um, the work that we do, which is at that time, we, you know, we focused on health. But uh, we know that uh, with health, there are a whole range of social determinants. And the work that we do now, um, even though, you know, we talk about diversifying and, you know, we now work in governance and, you know, we, we're um, focusing on different areas of, um, you know, the development suite of um, activity. But at the end of the day, um, if you don't have health, you know, anything that we do isn't going to be effective. So we call those things the social determinants. So the social determinants of health have really driven uh, the work that we did previously and I think to a large extent still drive what we do now. So APT has grown quite a lot mm. over the past year. Uh, what do you think about, and obviously as, as people as people join, uh, culture shifts mm. and, and, and changes and I, I know that mm. there's... Uh, Having spoken to you and a few other people who've been here for quite a while, you know, you want to maintain like the, the culture mm -hmm. that you, that you had at the, at the beginning. Um, how do you see? Why do you think that the culture that you had at the start is is integral? And how do you uh, see that being maintained as mm -hmm. as we move forward? Our culture, um, as we um, 
I guess when, when we, we when we were first established, uh, was a culture that evolved from the um, the like-minded um, passion and commitment that those few people had, and as more people came on board. Um, we were able to, I guess it gives you a, a discernment about the sort of people you want to be working with. So we had, you know, the, the luxury of really picking and choosing the right people to work with us, those that shared our culture, those who were able, you know, had demonstrated, you know, in their um, their personal and professional lives before joining us that, that, you know, that they would be a good cultural fit for us. And I guess, you know, that uh, process um, grew and uh, evolved with us. And then we come to a point in time when there is very rapid change. And we know that uh, for many organisations uh, that go through rapid change, um, if the culture isn't right, that um, the, 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 the most likely outcome is that you're not going to succeed. So not only do you have an unhappy workforce, you end up with um, a, um, a business that uh, doesn't um, um, succeed, certainly in the way that you would had expected to, or you have a, a business that actually fails. And there's a lot of research around that. And so we're at a very um, important time of our growth in that as we get to this point now where we've more than doubled, um, it, is, uh, it behoves every single one of us who's, jo who's joined this company to understand that they haven't just joined a company, that they have joined a family, a family that shares its values, that looks after each other, that supports each other, a family that provides um, inspirational leadership for its younger people and um, learns from uh, mistakes in a, a non-prejudicial way that we can, that, you know, so we have a, a blame-free environment so that we can learn. We have a, uh, an environment which allows us to exchange ideas freely, um, to acknowledge each other's um, contribution, our skills, our talents, allows us to um, be creative and individual at the same time. And, um, and you know, it's, it's a real honour to be um, given the role of, um, you know, to look after our organisational culture. Um, but it requires um, me to listen and it requires all of us to listen as well as act. And, uh, and I hope um, that people do feel that they can come and talk to me when they feel a little bit um, under, um, you know, under threat, if you like, of, um, uh, of uh, it's probably not the right word to use, but, you know, maybe un under pressure might be a better word to use, under pressure uh, to... Um, in the work that they're doing or feeling that they're not um, being heard or their contribution isn't being valued, that they can come and talk about it and we can look at ways in which we might be able to, you know, to provide the support. But everything that we do, every, every way we act and everything that we say is, you know, should be reflective of the culture. And, uh, and sometimes those things are just little things and they could be like, um, you know, like we've started to create these um, these conversation opportunities, these conversation spaces physically, but also the opportunities, like I say, through the yarning circles to um, to talk about our experiences and, you know, to make contributions to the wider development um, 
uh, agenda. And um, also... Um, and just going to the, the yarning circles, mm. what is it uh, in particular about the yarning circles? Well, the yarning circles, um, they, they came about as a result of the work that we do with in our Indigenous communities and understanding the importance of um, um, people's opportunity to freely speak their mind and to share information um, in a way that is absolutely respectful. Uh, and it isn't about you know someone um, talking over someone else or or someone um, thinking that their idea might be better than the other or creating debate. It's about respectfully listening to what everyone has to say and giving every person the opportunity to contribute to the discussion. And um, and I think that um, you know when you've got um, a lot of younger professionals coming in. It is an important way, not only for them to learn, but for them to learn, you know, to learn new knowledge and acquire uh, new insights. But for them to bring a perspective that might not necessarily be able to be brought, because you know, normally you would find that they would sort of sit back and not say anything. But if everyone is given equal opportunity to make a contribution to the conversation, then, then you're hearing every perspective. And I know we've had a lot of um, discussions around the difference with, you know, between millennials and the Gen Ys. And, um, you know, I'm neither. <laughs> I'm a baby boomer. I think there's only, you know, a couple of us in the company that are actual baby boomers. And I just find it really interesting that I seem to connect better with the millennials than I do, you know, than the Gen Ys do with the millennials. Um, but, you know, we have to acknowledge that, you know, um, the millennials are the future. And, uh, and I think, um, you know, the wisdom of people um, who are, you know, in the, um, uh, you know, more mature in their professional lives, um, it, you know, is something that needs to be acknowledged also. So it has to be a good balance about, you know, what it is the millennials want. What are we going to be able to do to allow millennials to, um, you know, make the contribution we know they can, um, you know, from the perspective that is a very different one than what we experienced as we went through our professional growth. So, yeah, I think the yarning circles are um, a really good way of um, informally um, creating cohesiveness as well as uh, um, demonstrating respect and uh, also creating a knowledge environment. Yeah, earlier on this morning we were talking about... Um empathy mm. and how it's kind of core uh, mm. to, to what app and well GTA did and yeah. what app does mm. um, could you just ex expand uh, upon well what you did say was that it's kind of foundational in how mm. uh, we operate mm. and it was foundational mm. uh, in the beginning mm. and you were tying in empathy to health and I just think everyone um, listening would probably like to hear mm. what I heard earlier on today yeah well when we talk about empathy we talk about um, not um, not being sympathetic or feeling sorry for people, what we're doing is saying, look, we recognise that life hasn't dealt everyone the same hand and um, there are social injustices that occur. But, and we have, um, we have skills, knowledge and ability um, as a group of professionals to, um, to make a contribution in a way that does uh, require us to be empathetic, um, to understand the... Um, you know, the, the challenges and the issues that people face, um, either in the developing world or even in the developed world. And that's why it's important that we recognise that not all the work we do 
is in developing countries. We actually work in Australia as well, and um, for the same purpose, to the same ends. That you know, we want to address in inequity, and we want to address um, the the drivers of that inequity, which are often around poverty. And um, the other thing about empathy is that um, without empathy, um, we're not going to make the, the, the right choices or the choices that are going to match our values. We have to really understand the people we're working with and for, and um, those um, efforts need to be underpinned always uh, by our values. And that is why empathy is an important driver of values as well, I believe. And is there anything you'd like to say to um, people listening, people of ACT, anything in particular? <laughs> just, uh, yeah, just join the party. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great, we, you know, we, we're all very fortunate. And uh, uh, to be part of, um, you know, APT um, at this crucial time in, in um, you know, in world history, because, you know, we know that uh, the gap between rich and poor is growing greater and greater. Um, we know that, you know, poverty is the basis for all of the, you know, the inequity and the sadness and the um, and, and even you know the the strife the the, um, the the unrest that we see across across the globe, um, and uh, we have to close that gap. We absolutely have to close that gap, and um, you know it's everyone's responsibility to be part of that. It's it, absolutely, and uh, just as we you know from my perspective, I have a great passion for contributing to closing the gap on disparity and inequity in, you know, in Australia between our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander brothers and sisters. But you know, globally, we've got that same challenge. Well, thank you again to Karen for taking the time for a chat. If you enjoyed our conversation, I highly recommend that you listen to the extended version as we talk about some of the remarkable experiences Karen has had over the years. Until next time, thanks for listening.